Would you open with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3? Exodus chapter 3. We'll continue today in verse 11. Uh, Two weeks ago, when we were in this passage, we discussed God's provision for the people of Israel. Moses is a shepherd in Midian, and God has called Moses, and he's preparing Moses to be the mediator for his people. Moses is called to liberate the people of God. But he has some questions. And in fact, there are five objections that Moses raises to God in, verses, in chapters 3 and 4. Today, we're going to look at the first two questions that he asks. And next week, we'll look at the final three questions. So let's pray, and we'll hear God's word. Father, your word is true. Your word is holy. Your word is pure. And we are sinners in need of your grace. And so we come to you today asking that your word would change our hearts. Would you conform us to it? Father, the ways that we fall short, would you lift us up? Father, would you give us ears to hear and hearts that are open to your will and your righteousness in these words? We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear God's word. Exodus chapter 3, starting in verse 11. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you. And this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord The God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. You and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. And so shall you plunder the Egyptians. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of the Lord stands forever. Amen. 
our wisdom, insofar as it ought to be deemed true and solid wisdom, consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. That's the first sentence in John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion. He says that wisdom is knowledge of God first and knowledge of ourselves second. And he actually arranges his whole systematic theology, the Institutes of Christian Religion, around this idea. By the way, that's also how our shorter catechism is organized. Question three, what do the scriptures principally teach? The scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. This twofold knowledge is also all throughout the scriptures. That's where we get it from. I could point several places, but just one so you can see it. John 20, 31. But these are written so that you may believe that, the, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so our passage today deals with those two questions. Who is man and who is God? Moses has been called by God. We're, we're jumping in in the middle of this story. But he's a man who's been stripped of his identity. In his childhood, he was torn between Egypt and Israel. And now he's, he's been rejected by both of those nations. And so for 40 years, he's been living among a foreign people. He's been living as a, not a faithful worshiper of God. That becomes clear in chapter 4, which we'll get to in a couple weeks. He's, he's a pagan worshiper at this point, probably. And he's living among these pagan people. And he's wandering around in the wilderness. And so we, we might at best call him a virtuous pagan. He's not a righteous man. But here at the burning bush, Moses experiences what Proverbs calls the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord. It's here that Moses learns the answer to these two most important questions. Who am I? And who is God? After the proclamation that God will save his people, Moses directly asks God those questions. Who am I? And who is God? So let's consider each of those questions. First, who am I? Look at verse 11. But Moses said to God, Who am I? That I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. Once again, the, the first couple of chapters of Exodus, Moses is, is presented as a righteous man. In chapter 2, his mother calls him good, which echoes the creation account. He engages in two acts of redemption, first for the Jews and second for the Gentiles. And if you're reading this for the first time, you would expect that Moses would, would be continued to be presented that way. That's how epic stories like this work. That's how they're supposed to go, these, uh, these what sound like myths. The hero is supposed to be a flawless demigod. But in verse 11, and by the way, this is part of why we know this is real history. In verse 11, we get the first real look at the cracks in Moses' character. In the presence of God, Moses becomes acutely aware of his own frailty. In verse 6, Moses, this rugged man, this strong man who's wandering in the wilderness by himself, falls on his face in fear before God. And when God tells him what's going to happen, Moses' immediate reaction is to distance himself from it. And so he asks this question, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? Now, 
This comes into really clear focus as we work through this whole event, but Moses is not being sincere here. He's not asking a legitimate question. What he really wants is for God to leave him alone. He's saying, I'm not your guy. I'm, I'm a shepherd of the wilderness. I, you don't really want me to do this. But God doesn't let him get away with that. This is his answer in verse 12. He, God, said, but I will be with you. This shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So Moses' question is clearly an attempt to get out of this calling that God has called him to. But God answers his question in kind of a roundabout way. But he answers it. You see, it's, it's actually true that Moses is uniquely qualified for this job. He has close connections to Egypt and Israel. He's an adopted member of the royal family. He's perhaps the only person who is actually able to address both the Hebrews and the Egyptians with the same authority. But God doesn't mention any of that. Instead, when Moses asks, who am I? God says, I am with you. If you write your Bible, I'll write this down. That I will, in verse 12, is the divine name. It comes up again in, in verse 14. You might translate it Yahweh with you. But he also tells Moses about a sign that Israel will come to worship God on Sinai. When Moses asks, who am I? God responds by defining Moses with respect to himself, with respect to God. Now, this is, this is really odd to our modern ears because we tend to think individualistically. We tend to think atomistically about ourselves. We like to define ourselves in, in the modern world with reference to ourselves, something inside of us, not something that's outside of us. You see this all over the place. You can think about the, the sexual confusion in our culture. Homosexuality and transgenderism are driven by people's individualistic desires. I define myself by how I feel by something inside of me. Something a little closer to home, how often do we tell our kids that they need to find their passion in life? They need to look inside themselves and figure out what they like, what their skills are, and, and that's, what that's how they'll know what to do with their lives. Even worse, a lot of people are committed to Christianity for purely internal reasons. We talked about this a little bit with the children. Their motivation for following Christ is simply because it feels good. It's convenient. Not because Christ is actually worthy of our allegiance. Biblical Christianity requires us to repudiate that kind of thinking. Instead, biblical Christianity acknowledges that you were created. And you were not created for yourself. You were created for God. You were created for communion with him. You were created to worship him. What is the chief end of man if not to glorify God and to enjoy him forever? That's who we are. We are creatures in the sight of our creator. We don't define ourselves. No, God defines who we are. And first and foremost, we are worshipers. Which leads to our second question. Who is God? Look at verse 13. Then Moses said to God, if, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, now one, of the, one commenter uh, translated this, this is not an accurate translation, but it, it gets the point across. One commenter translated this, I'm not saying I'm not going. Moses is doing that. But he says, suppose I go to the people of Israel and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. 
And they asked me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Now, once again, Moses, he's being a little bit evasive. He's thinking, just as you and I would, that nobody's going to believe the story. <laughs> if you told someone that you were out in the wilderness and a bush was burning, but it didn't get burned up, and God spoke to you from the bush, they wouldn't believe, you, you wouldn't be believed. And so he asked God to give him something to identify him by, something that the people of Israel would recognize. And so God responds by giving him two different names. Look at verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but verse 14, God's answer here is perhaps the most studied verse in the entire Bible. Whole books have been written about verse 14. Articles about verse 14 come out constantly. There, there's so much in this answer that it's, it's quite literally inexhaustible. But that's precisely the point. God says to Moses, I am who I am. Hebrew, it's a yet, a share, a yet. There are any number of ways we can translate this. Uh, one commenter acknowledges at least nine possible translations. I am who I am. I am who I was. I am who I shall be. I was who I am. I was who I was. I was who I shall be, and so on. And so there's so much in this, and it's, it's, it's almost impossible to wrap our heads around. And so the question is, how do we really understand this? Well, just to get a start on this, perhaps the most obvious thing is to notice that, that God transcends time and space. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He has no beginning. He has no end. He's not bound by anything created. He is the author of all things. Completely sovereign. But he's also incomprehensible completely. We can't understand him. There's a book that I would commend to you. It's called One or Two. Seeing a World of Difference by Peter Jones. Jones was a professor who served at several seminaries. But the premise of the book is that there are fundamentally two ways of looking at the world. What he calls oneism and twoism. Oneism is the idea that the world is a, a closed system. That, that takes on different expressions. Uh, materialists, atheists believe that the universe is just matter and everything operates in that realm. You have kind of new age people, pagan people, who are also oneists. They believe in the spiritual, but the spiritual still exists within the universe. If you ever hear someone talk about uh, being grateful to the universe or, or to Mother Earth, that's, that's the kind of thing you're dealing with. There's, there's even a kind of pseudo-Christian oneism. The belief that God is just a big version of us, an old bearded man in the sky somewhere, who's the most powerful being in the whole universe. The other option is twoism, and it's, it's uniquely Christian. The only false religions that actually hold to this are Judaism and Islam, and they're that way because they are deviations from Christianity. But twoism is the idea that there is something beyond the universe, there is something that is not us. There is something beyond the created order. God says that he is, but his is is nowhere comparable to my is or your is. He's not simply greater or more powerful than us. He is completely and totally other. In Reformed theology, we call this the creator-creature distinction. It's fundamental to our understanding of the faith. He is creator, and we are creature. 
One way to think about this is to think about the sun. So the sun gives off immense light. By the sun's light, we're able to see everything else. But have you ever tried to look directly into the sun? You might be able to bear it for a few seconds, but, but pretty quickly you have to turn away. Its light pours over everything. Its light touches everything, but our knowledge of the sun is always indirect. We can't look at the sun, much less look into it. And God's self-revelation, his, his revealing of himself to us is the same. He gives so much of himself to us. His revelation is overwhelming. He pours his light out over everything. He holds the universe together by the word of his power. He's, he's active in the world all the time. But he's so holy and so pure and so mighty that despite everything he gives us, we cannot even begin to understand what he is like. Now, everything he tells us about himself is true, but it's just a small drop of who he is. He is completely and totally other, completely and totally separate from us, completely and totally beyond our ability to understand. And so the first step in actually understanding God is to understand what he is not. We'll come to this again when we get to chapter 20, but I think the second commandment, the prohibition against graven images is particularly helpful here. This is what our larger catechism says about the second commandment. It says, the sins forbidden in the second commandment are the making of any representation of God, of all or any of the three persons, either inwardly in our mind or outwardly in any kind of image or likeness of any creature whatsoever in all worshiping of it or God in it or by it. So we don't use images in worship, but there's this little phrase in there, images inwardly in our mind. And you may be thinking, that's impossible. How do I, how do I not make a, a mental image of God? But that's precisely the point. At the core of our being, at the core of who we are, we are idolaters. Our conceptions of God, our views of God are always falling short of who he is. And so that means two things. First, it means that we must always measure our ideas of God against scripture. We're constantly inundated with false notions about God, whether that's through TV and movies, whether that's through false teachers. Maybe it's even our own hearts. We like to make God in our own image. And you know, the world is okay with our worship of God if he is just that bearded guy in the sky. If, if he just conforms to whatever we would like him to be. But that's not who God is, and so we need to be constantly checking our ideas of God against Scripture. But second, our, our natural tendency to idolatry means that we need a savior. We can't keep the second commandment. We can't keep any commandments. We are lawbreakers by nature. We are under judgment. And if God really is who he says he is, if he really is so great and so powerful that he's beyond our imagination, if he's really perfect and holy and just, we're here in really big trouble. But that's why he gives us his second name. Look at verse 15. God also said unto Moses, Say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I'm to be remembered throughout all generations. God goes on. To make several promises to Moses. He promises the land. He promises that Pharaoh will be defeated. 
He promises that the Israelites will plunder Egypt. But the thing about a promise is that a promise is only as good as the promiser. So this is why God gives Moses his second name, God of your fathers. By invoking Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, God is recalling the promise that he made to them. So here's the context. Abraham was promised two things. He was promised that he would be the father of many nations, that he would inherit the land. Now, both of these things reach their final fulfillment in the new covenant, but we get smaller fulfillments here. The offspring promise has come to pass. You'll remember from Exodus 1 that they're overflowing. There's too many. The, the Pharaoh can't even keep up. He can't even count them. But the land promise is delayed. If you go back to Genesis 15, it says that the reason for that is that the Amorites, their, their iniquity had not been completed. So God is actually extending mercy to someone else by, by keeping the Israelites in Egypt. But if you want to read about that, go to Genesis 15. But why is that important? Well, look at verse 15. The final sentence of verse 15, this is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. The name that God more closely identifies with, the name that God wants to be remembered by, is not his transcendent name. Although he gives that to us, although that is his name, the name that he most closely identifies with is is his historical name. The God of the universe, in his immense mercy, sets aside the vast distance between himself and man, between creator and creature, to honor a promise. Abraham, just like all of us, is a creature of dirt. And God says, that dirt bag on the earth is mine. And I'm going to save his children from bondage because I promised him I would. Why did the Son of God come down from heaven to save us? Because of his covenant with Adam, and with Noah, and with Abraham and Moses and David and so on. And just as he took on the name of Abraham and ages past, today he takes on our names. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, became the Son of Man. And in the Gospels, that's always what he refers to himself as, the Son of Man. And he did that for our sake. I can't say it better than Paul in Philippians 2. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. This is the glorious grace of the gospel. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, became the Son of Man and died for our sake. He did acknowledge his divine status on earth. He didn't hide that. But his divine perfection drove him to come to earth in the first place. To seek and to save the lost. And so do you trust the Savior? Do you trust his gospel? You're called to hold on to the God who is near to us. These are the most important questions that you can answer. 
Who am I? I am a sinner. I'm a sinner in need of God's grace, but I'm created for a purpose. I'm created in God's image for communion with him. And ultimately, I am created for his glory, to worship him. Who is God? Well, God is not us. He's completely and totally other. He's beyond anything that we could ever imagine. He is so powerful and so holy that our words cannot even begin to approximate what that means. But he is also near us. And in his great mercy, because of the love of which he loved us, because of his promises, he bends down to our level. He gets down into the dirt that we're made of. And he picks us up. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen.